Boker Tov, everybody. Good morning. Buenos dias. Guten Tag. Uh, bonjour. Glad everybody is here this morning and doing well and being blessed. Baruch Hashem. It is the fourth Aliyah of our parasha. We spoke uh, yesterday uh, at length about some introductory thoughts to this parasha. The fourth Aliyah today uh, would actually begin in chapter 33 and verse 6. And uh, this is talking about the the elaborate, um, you know, kind of <clears throat> episode, I guess, in which um, the people of Jacob's camp are being divided, his wives and children, and they're being led to see uh, to see Esau for the first time. And so <clears throat> that is the Aliyah for today as we're looking at that. We're going to be looking at some things preceding that. And uh, as he's getting ready to... Uh, to have this encounter, we're looking at a few things that happened before that, especially with him wrestling as kind of another seminal moment in Jacob's life in which he is wrestling, as it were, with uh, this angel of Hashem. And we're going to be talking about some some common insights to this, some things that are just kind of really uh, common thoughts about that, but just aren't all that uh, plausible. So, looking at a few things, I want to look at some some highlighted comments uh, as we're looking at the introduction here to this power shot. This is from the Kale Tumash. I just want to read this uh, highlighted section here and make a couple of comments on it. By the way, I was talking, Revisi and I were, you know, having our morning devotional, and we were talking about this uh, part of the devotion I was talking about the concept of bitikon which we've we've been speaking about that at length here this year uh, increasing our bitikon increasing uh, our trust we talked about that yesterday at length about trust but it's interesting to me because what I was saying based on something that Rabbi Tworsky was pointing out was that um, our complete faith in Hashem, our absolute trust in Hashem, has a, in and of itself, has a supernatural ability uh, to attract, let me just phrase it this way, to attract divine energy for salvation. Let me just put it that way. So, meaning that... A lot of times we're going through situations and we don't know, we need salvation. We need a Yeshua. That's actually how it's phrased in Judaism. You, we need a Yeshua. We need a salvation. And it not that remarkable, this as an aside, isn't it remarkable that in Judaism today, when, when anyone see, uh, says, rather, that they need to be saved from a situation, or they need a miracle, right? Or they need a 
uh, some type, a deliverance of some type. That's how we would say it in English. I need to be set free from the situation. I need a miracle. I need to be delivered out of this. I need a healing. I need, uh, I need a, I need a financial, you know, I, I need a financial answer. You know, however we would phrase that. But, but when we're speaking about it, using religious Jewish vernacular. It doesn't matter if we're talking about healing. It doesn't matter if we're talking about finances. It doesn't matter if we're talking about relationships. It doesn't matter if we're talking about a job. The What we say is that person or I myself need a Yeshua, need a salvation. Incidentally, what does it mean to be saved? That's very common for people to say that, right? We, we need to be saved. Well, salvation equals covenant, okay? What we need, what we're saying is, in general, someone who is saved means that they have, they've entered the covenant. This is why, <laughs> this is so important, this is why uh, when, when the scripture talks about you need to be born again. The reason for that, ladies and gentlemen, is that's how somebody enters the covenant. That's how all Jews enter the covenant. Born again is not something that is not a phrase, as I've said in a plethora of times. It's not new. It's not a new phrase. It wasn't something invented by New Testament authors. It's a Jewish phrase. And so to be born again means you enter the covenant. And in particular, to be saved means if you're, if you're in the covenant and you're saying, <clears throat> okay, I'm in the covenant, but I'm, I'm going through a difficult moment. I need a, I need a Yeshua. What you're, what you're saying at that point is, I need, I need basically a promise that goes along with the covenant in which I find myself, if that makes sense, to break it down more succinctly. So we go through life, we need these, we need a Yeshua. And we don't know what the answer is. Uh, we don't know what the process is. And I can tell you from experience that sometimes when you're go dealing with something that's very serious, and we all have things that are serious and with which we deal with, with, with which we deal with, and, 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 you know, some people may be going through something right now that they, to them is a very difficult situation. Somebody else may be going through something else that um, is far more difficult. You know, my, my father is, has often said, you know, don't ever say that you've hit rock bottom because you most likely you haven't and and always remember there's somebody who's worse off than you and of course that's not always helpful when we're going through something you write difficult but it is helpful from the standpoint that we can be grateful that our circumstance is not as horrific as it could be with that said, I can tell you that going through a, a very, very difficult situation and you're trying to wrap your mind around the proper path forward, 
should I get this treatment? Should I not get that treatment? Should I do, should I take this avenue or this approach? Can be overwhelming. It can be psychologically overwhelming. Now, what I have found through my own journey uh, going through a difficult situation, very difficult situation, by the way, not, not just, no offense to anybody, but I'm not talking about, hey, I, I don't know how to pay my car payment. That's a difficult situation. Yes, it is. But I'm not talking about that kind of stuff. I'm talking about things that are, frankly, life-threatening. Okay? Uh... I have found that there is a peace beyond understanding that descends upon us when we place our absolute bitikon, our absolute trust, our absolute reliance upon Hashem. There is a peace that comes when we say, I don't know, Hashem, what the answer is. And, and, but I'm looking at you. There, it's like in the sitter when we say, we don't know what to do. This is a quote actually from 2 Chronicles chapter 20 from Jehoshaphat. We, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. I can tell you right now that there's a shalom that falls in that moment. And I can also tell you that just having that level of bitikon, which, by the way, is also faith, but it's really more than faith. Faith is really not enough. People say, well, I have faith. Well, that's, that's great. So do the demons. But do we have bitikon, absolute reliance? And I can tell you that when we have such bitikon, um that it attracts, just that alone attracts a divine energy of a Yeshua. There is something about God, and he, he talks about this in his, in his word, there is something about him, he loves to respond to our absolute faith in him. He loves to respond to our absolute trust in him. He wants to be our knight in shining armor. And therefore, when we place our trust in Hashem, there is something about that that arouses him to come with, with, um, with speed, with alacrity, to meet our need. And this is why faith is and trust is so important. So it says here, this is just a highlighted quote. Um, a military encounter, this is talking about the encounter with Esau. A military encounter with Esau would have proved dangerous enough. Battling the evil of Esau on a metaphysical level is perilous in the extreme. For at stake is not just the body, but also the soul. The enticements of the material world are so numerous and so powerful that it requires almost superhuman strength to resist them. This is 
what Esau represents. He, Esau represents the, uh, the physical world, the, the, the desire for material things. You know, by the way, the sages liken Esau to, to Christianity as well and, to, and subsequently to Rome. And because the two, Christianity and Rome, are connected. That's just the, the ancient, you know, rabbinic idea. Um, and, of course, Rome is also connected to Greece. Basically, Grecian culture and Roman culture are very much the same. The gods are the same gods, just by different names. So it all kind of plays into one. But it's important to point out, you know... Um, People, we, we can have theological uh, discussions back and forth, back and forth. And I have found, again, the Rebbitzin and I were just talking about this this morning. It's, it's amazing to me, and I don't know the, the proper adjective to use, but it's amazing to me how convoluted people's minds have become theologically. And the example that I used is that, you know, we say that Messiah did not abolish the Torah, you know, and, and it's it's not logical, you know, for to think that he did. And Christian, a Christian will come along and say he didn't abolish it; he just fulfilled it. But then my thought process is, well, if you think the law is no longer, and and again, you know, we could discuss the law in, in particular and what laws are in play today in terms of those things that we can do because we can do them and others that we cannot currently because there's not a temple, but pushing that aside, we're just talking about laws in general. If you think that the law of God is no longer effective for you, like you no longer have to do it, it's no longer authoritative in your life. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that, that means it's been abolished for you. I mean, hello. I mean, if if Yeshua came along and because of his death, burial, and resurrection, he fulfilled the law. By the way, that's not what that means, but pushing that aside for a second. <clears throat> um, he fulfilled the law, air quotes, so that you don't have to do it. By definition, that means that he has abolished it for you. But then I know that people, they're their minds are, it's like trying to unscramble an egg. Like they have been taught, and I know it's kind of like, like Chinese water torture, you know, drip by drip by drip over the centuries that, no, no, he didn't abolish. He just, he just, he just fulfilled it. And, and I know I no longer have to do it, but that doesn't mean he abolished it. It just does. It's difficult, you know, to help people sometimes because, um, and I don't even know if I'm, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm actually waxing eloquently at this point to try to make sense. Cause, cause to me, it's so nonsensical. It's challenging to, uh, describe. It's challenging sometimes to describe nonsense, right? It's challenging sometimes to get into the scrambled egg and explain what it's, how it's supposed to be unscrambled. It's challenging to do that sometimes because it's so, clear to understand and yet for people it's not but anyway when you look at this thing so, so so my point was is that you can try to 
you know, split hairs with people, or I shouldn't say we're not trying to split hairs. We're just trying to, you know, be sensical and logical and scriptural. That's always important. Uh, whereas seemingly people are trying to split hairs, but you can have those conversations. But, but when you just step it back and say, okay, look, we're about to celebrate Hanukkah. Okay. What is Hanukkah about? Hanukkah is about a culture that wasn't trying to kill us. You could even argue that the Greeks actually loved Israel in the sense that they didn't they didn't want to they didn't want to kill us. They loved us. They thought we were cool. They thought we they they wanted us to be a part of their Grecian world, their Grecian empire. They loved us. They loved Israel. I heart Israel was a bumper sticker that was on, on almost every Greek chariot. Um, but what they wanted to do was to get us not to practice Judaism. And the three things primarily that they did in order to strip us of our faith is they banned circumcision. They banned and outlawed circumcision. They banned banned and outlawed Sabbath. And they banned and outlawed Rosh Chodesh, which effectively nullifies the entire Torah. Because each one of those three things are intrinsically connected to everything else. Well, that's the enemy of God. And by the way, these same people who wanted to uh, get rid of all those three things, they subsequently set up an idol in the temple of God, Zeus. And they sacrificed a pig on the altar of God in the temple. And they uh, made sure and, and soaked all the Torah scrolls in, in pig broth. Right now, that's all historical fact, and I think everybody would agree. If you're looking at this story, no matter who you are, you would agree that Israel is the hero, and in this story, and the Greek armies, the solution armies, are the enemy. Right? You could also look at every other despot in the world. Every other ungodly kingdom in the world, whether it be Rome or Egypt or um, any other type of dict dict dictator, a, a crusader army, how about Adolf Hitler? Um, how about any other despot, the, the, the Russian czar, or later on the Soviet Union, what do they all have in common as it pertains to Jews? They all, all of them that I just mentioned, wanted to ban circumcision, outlaw Sabbath observance, get rid of the Rosh Hodesh, basically get Jews to not practice Judaism. I mean, to one extreme or the other. Isn't that true? Yes, it is true. 
And so we look at all those and we think, um, forget about, push theology for a side, to a side for a second. You know, we could go back and forth on that. But let's just look at the playing field and say, the people who are wearing the no Torah jersey, no circumcision, no Sabbath, no Rosh Hodesh, these are people like um, Antiochus Epiphanes, the Caesar, Pharaoh, Adolf Hitler, the Soviet, you know, Stalin, the Tsar of Russia. These are all the evil of evil people, right? I mean, come on. Are we honest with each other? Yes, these are evil people, wicked people that we all agree are going to hell in a fiery handbasket. The people on the other jersey, the Jews, everybody knows those are the people of God for sure. Now, but yet when, when we, and I, I say we euphemistically, when we examine our theology, we find that our theology consists of getting rid of circumcision, getting rid of Sabbath, getting rid of Rosh Hodesh, getting rid of the law of Moses. What jersey are we wearing? You are taking a snap on the field from Adolf Hitler. You're throwing the ball to Antiochus Epiphanes. And Pharaoh and Caesar are blocking for you. Now, you don't need to study the word of God to find out that that ain't good. You don't need to have a dissertation on the book of Mark or Luke or John or Jeremiah to find out that wearing that jersey probably ain't a good idea. This is why, ladies and gentlemen, you need to think. You need to think. Because the guy who's raising his hand in the room and says, yep, no circumcision, get rid of that nasty Sabbath, is Constantine. Is Ramses. Is Antiochus Epiphanes. The Greek ruler of the Hanukkah story who... His name means God manifest. Is Adolf Hitler Heimler? The Gestapo. These are the people that have that way of thinking. The murderous crusaders. That alone should give us pause. So, this is Esau. This is Esau. This is Esau who wants material things. What's the ultimate goal of Esau? The ultimate goal of Esau is to get rid of God. You know, this is what the rabbis teach. And I understand that it catches people. It sounds counterintuitive, but it's so true when you actually are able to have clarity of vision the Sadducees in the in, in history were the word of God only people. Okay? And the rabbis point out that the purpose of the Sola Scriptura was actually to get people not to follow the, the Scriptura. You say, well, how can that be? 
How can it be that somebody who believes in word of God only actually has the goal spiritually aware or unaware to take me away from God. Well, it's interesting because when somebody's soul scriptura, they become a hyper-legalist. And legalism is what leads us away from Hashem. It's just an interesting concept. So reading our, going back to our, um, our highlighted point here, let's continue reading. It says, it is for this reason that outside of Judaism, religiosity and holiness are almost universally synonymous with asceticism. Let me read this again. Let me read this again. This is important. It is for this reason that outside of Judaism, religiosity and holiness are almost universally synonymous with asceticism. What is asceticism? Asceticism is uh, like being a monk. You can't eat, you know, you, you can't, uh, well, basically you're a monk, right? You're, you, you, you're, you live an ascetic lifestyle that is completely and utterly devoid of, frankly, joy. It goes on to say, it is practically a given that any engagement with the physical world corrupts. So the only option for spiritual aspirants is to shun all involvement with the material world. Now, that's usually what people think. Now, all of this is in balance, okay? So <clears throat> you shouldn't just indulge in anything material, right? Like, I'm a firm believer in that you need to, you need to guard your ear gate and guard your eye gate, Right? I'm not against going to the movies. My family and I go to see movies a lot. We enjoy, in fact, going to movies, okay? We enjoy watching movies. And we're also discriminatory about what we watch. We don't watch a lot of the garbage that is out there. And, you know, we just, we're, we're, we're conscience conscious of what rather we're conscious of 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 what we watch you know within reason uh same thing with music we are careful about the type of music we listen to and we avoid the garbage which there's a lot of it uh and you could go on there's other things you know out there, um, that you just, but, but being religious does, you know, to a lot of people, that means if you're religious, it means you, you don't listen to music. You don't eat meat. You don't, you don't drink alcohol. You don't, uh, you don't watch TV. You don't go to the movie. You don't, uh, in fact, you don't do anything. You just, basically you, you wear white linen and you, you stand in a corner all day and, and, and basically you pray. And if you read anything, it, or listen to anything, it has to be, uh, you know, scripture stuff. Um, but that's not reality. It says, in contrast, the Torah demands, listen to this, in contrast, 
The Torah demands that we both engage the physical world and control it, co-opting the vitality of materiality for holy purposes. So, it's like uh, Jewish people are not. We eat meat, as an example, right? But, we don't just eat anything we want. We have a, we, we, we get to enjoy that if you want to. You're not required to necessarily. But we get to enjoy that within a confined parameter. And as a result, we elevate that particular activity to a level of holiness. We get to go and shop for groceries and shopping for groceries to a Jew is actually unbeknownst to a lot of people a religious experience it's a worship experience why how's it, how is how is going grocery shopping a worship experience because every time you go to the grocery store and you make the effort to look for hectares to make sure that what you're buying is kosher you choose to buy product x because it has a hectare as opposed to product Y, even when products X may be 10 or 20 or a dollar more. But you don't compromise for the sake of money because God is able. That, ladies and gentlemen, is an act of worship. So it says, so we're called to be in the world, but not of the world. We're actually called to be in the world, but to control it, meaning that we elevate it to a sense of holiness through our Torah observance. Says Jacob understood that in order to face this challenge successfully, it is imperative for us to conceive of ourselves at all times as emissaries. Once again, there's nothing new in the New Testament. There's not one thing new in the New Testament, not one. Not one concept that's new in the New Testament. And one of the concepts that's not new in the New Testament is that we are emissaries of God and the earth. Ladies and gentlemen, that's called being a Jew. As God's emissaries in the world, we remain aware. I want to remind everybody that I'm reading here from an orthodox commentary, just in case you're wondering. As God's emissaries of the world, we remain aware that we are not operating solely on our, on our own power. Rather, we are backed by divine power and therefore can always draw upon infinite resources of divine insight, strength, and inspiration. Once again, nothing new in the New Testament. We are emissaries of God in this world and we rely upon his divine power to do that that we do. Think good, ladies and gentlemen, and it will be good. End of our Aliyah today. Todah for being with me. It's been a pleasure to be with you. I pray that today has been uh, eye-opening and inspirational. May all of you have a wonderful and amazing day. With God's help, we will look forward to seeing you tomorrow for the fifth Aliyah. Until then, be blessed. Remember to support Lapid Judaism and Sarsalem Synagogue with your tithes and offerings and your gifts. We have so many ways to give. In the description of this video, there are text numbers you can text to. You can call and talk to Keturah or you can give online. But I just want to ask you for your donations. I'm asking you to please contribute 
and be a part of the wonderful work that we're doing here. Shalom, everybody. Look forward to seeing you tomorrow.